0: And turn to Psalm 24. Like I said last week, if you don't know where Psalms is, just open your Bible to the middle, and you're pretty much already there. We won't spend a lot of time this morning on the introduction, but, but we are looking at a psalm that is about worship. It was A.W. Tozer who said, "Well, God wants us to worship Him. We cannot worship Him just any way we will. The one who made us to worship him has decreed how we shall worship him. He accepts only the worship which he himself has decreed. The Apostle Paul says it a little different in 1 Corinthians 14 40. He says everything should be done properly and in order. Understand in our society in our in many churches we have this idea of worship that is not real worship. It's not authentic worship because it's just nonsense. It's it's, uh, the pastors may preach and the worship leader may teach that, that if you just say the right words or we have the right, the right guitar tuning or the fogs machines and the light shows or, or we, we're at the right frequency or we're at the right pacing or, or whatever, if we do these things, if we just say the right words, God will move how we want him to move. Church, I want to tell you this morning, that is not biblical and that's not christianity that is actually witchcraft that is literally what witches and warlocks do when they recite spells they want to get the wording right say it right the right emphasis on the proper syllable so that the demons will do what they want we may have a move of us spirit if we try that but we will not be a move of the holy spirit and we want a move of the holy spirit do we not Worship is not about getting God to do what we want. It's about God getting us where, how he wants us. And so worship has to be about him and him alone to bring his will, to give him supreme glory above everything else. Now, in today's text, like I mentioned, Patty really knocked it out of the park with worship this morning. I thought it was just an accident. I was like, hey, praise God, this is good. But it was the spirit of Patty. But that's still okay because it's so fitting. It's so good. Uh, verse, uh, Sorry, verse 1, Psalm 24. It's a psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may arise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Pay heed, O Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up... Lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. That's beautiful. In church, it tells us not just, it does give us a peek at at ancient worship, how they would do things. But more than anything, it sends this message of worship that worship must bring glory to the king and no one else. I'll say that again. Worship must bring glory to the king and no one else. That's the whole point of this message. Now when you look at scripture, you look at Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 24, they are purposely put together. They are a cluster of psalms that do one thing. They are are speaking of Christ. When you look at Psalm 22, it tells us in quite great detail, prophetically, about what happens while Jesus is on the cross. You look at Psalm 23 and it speaks of the good shepherd. Well, who said he was the good shepherd? Jesus, right? And in Psalm 24, it talks about Jesus in worship. And well, that's what we're gonna unpack this morning. Austin Duncan, who who is a pretty well-known preacher, he says it like this. He, He says, Psalm 22 is about the cross of Christ. Psalm 23 is about the shepherd's crook of Christ. And Psalm 24 is about the crown of Christ because he's the king of glory. He's Yahweh. He's God. This is, this is all true. And what we see within this psalm, we like I said, we do get a, a glimpse of the, the liturgy or, or the methods of worship of ancient Israel. How they would um, worship as the king. This is an entrance. Song traditionally, is what we understand it as. It was as the king would lead the people into entrance into the tabernacle or the temple. He would be leading them in worship. And and when you get to verse 6, that's actually the congregational response. As he's he's singing, this is the part the whole nation of Israel would join together in song. And as the king had sang the first five, what we would call verses, now they would respond and say this. And together, then they would say verses 7 through 11. They would understand who God is. David was a worship leader as much as he was a warrior, as much as he was a king. And he ensured that Israel understood worship. He understood or he he made sure they understood that it was about the real king of Israel, their God. And we've all heard someone at some point in in church or in in your life, they've come to church service and they've they've just oh they just have a miserable attitude, they're just angry, they're bitter, whatever the case, and when it's over, they say, Well, I just didn't get anything out of the worship today. I just didn't get anything out of the message, I guess. I I just, I just, that's okay. It's not about you, right? That's the old joke. This lady goes to a preacher and says, I really just didn't like the worship music today. Good, we weren't worshiping you. It's not for you. It's for him. It's for God alone. The worship music is not to make us feel good. It's to lift him up. It's to glorify him. The message is, is to bring us closer to him, to draw us to him, to grow us as the Holy Spirit uses the sermon to penetrate our hearts. Worship is not me preaching. Worship is you receiving the preaching. That's, that's how that works. That's how it happens. Now, that's, that's not to say, when I say worship is about the king of glory, that is not to say that worship doesn't change us or affect us. Clearly, it does. It should drive us to him, but it is not about us primarily. It's about about God. It's worship for him and him alone, for the glory of God alone, not someone else. And the first thing we see in our text as we look at verses 1 and 2, we see that worship, real worship, good worship must herald him. As we worship, believe it or not, we are evangelizing. We're talking about God behind his back, right? You ever hear somebody compliment you behind your back? They didn't know you were there. And you hear them say, you know, so-and-so, they're they're pretty good people. I like them. That kind of makes you feel good, right? That's kind of what worship is. We're talking good stuff about God. We're worshiping Him. We're we're speaking the truth. We're telling the world around us about who we worship, who we serve. So David writes in verse 1, The earth is Yahweh's as well as its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. The main reason we spent so much time in the Gospel of Mark was so that we would understand Jesus Not just who he was, but where he went, why he did what he did. And how do we translate that into our lives now? How does that apply to me now? Because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. And if our lives, if our worship does not reflect that, then we either don't have an accurate picture of Jesus or we have an, uh, an inaccurate worship. We are worshiping the wrong Christ if we don't get it right. If our theology is off, our worship is off. Let me explain it like this. Imagine a young man, good looking handsome guy. He's at the library. And across the room he sees a beautiful young woman checking out books. And he just instantly falls in love with her right there. But he doesn't approach her. He doesn't talk to her. He doesn't ask her out on a date. Instead, he gets to know her. He follows her around. He learns her birthday, knows where she lives. What's her favorite kind of pizza? What kind of books was she checking out? What kind of movies does she enjoy? That's not a healthy relationship, is it? We call that a stalker. Now, let's flip it around. This guy only loves this woman, but doesn't care to know anything about her. Doesn't care what book she was checking out. She's, she's hot. She's beautiful. I just want to be with her. So all he does is ask her out. And when they're out on the date, he doesn't say, hey, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't really care about your job, honey. I just want to stare at you. Is that healthy? Obviously not. But church, we fall into those two categories so often in our worship of God. Because we get our theology wrong. We don't want to understand him. We don't want to learn about him. We don't want to seek him out. We don't want to understand his doctrines. We just want to worship. Who are you worshiping? And on the flip side of that, maybe that's all we want. All we want is doctrine. All we want is teaching. All we want is to know the Bible, but we don't really want a relationship. Both are unhealthy. There has to be a balance. Church, I've said this before. If your theology is off, your doxology will be off theology is what you believe about jesus doxology is how you worship him theology is the study of god doxology is an expression of praise of god your theology has to lead to proper doxology or you've missed the point of theology and if all you have is theology with no worship you have all the knowledge but you have no application you have no relationship you have maybe a functioning knowledge of God, but you have no intimacy with God. And if all you have is worship and no theology, or worse, you have bad theology, a bad version of Jesus in your mind, an inaccurate, unbiblical version of Jesus that's driving your worship, you don't have doxology. What you have is functioning idolatry. And idolatry is an abomination to the Lord. This is what makes so many worship songs so easily transferable to the country music station. Who are they singing about? Is it, is it Jesus? Is it their Savior? Or is it their, their lover, their boyfriend? Are they singing about the, the God of the universe or something more promiscuous? You can't tell. Many songs are like that this day. It's very hard to tell Jesus is not your boyfriend. Jesus is not your buddy. He is the king. True worship, right worship heralds him as king. It has to. And David says the earth is his and all as, as well as its fullness. In other words, the very land you are standing on, that belongs to him. That's his. Whatever the land produces, it only happens because of God's desire and God's design. Hebrews reminds us, Hebrews 3, 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. This is why when we give, when we take up our offerings, we're not giving God something He doesn't already own. We're just being obedient. We we say we're giving back to God what He's blessed us with. Psalmist says, Psalm 50, every beast of the forest is mine. This is God talking, the cattle on a thousand hills. So when we give, it's not because God is needy or God is broke, but because we want to worship Him, because we want to bless Him, and we want to be obedient to Him. The fullness of the earth is His, and that just means He owns everything. Everything that the earth encapsulates, everything it has, it belongs to Him, even its people when david says the world he's talking about the whole planet not just the ground beneath your feet but all of it and those who dwell in it belong to him this is david showing and all he's all he's telling us is the bigness or the vastness of god ezekiel confirms this ezekiel uh, eighteen four. behold all souls are mine says god the soul of the father as well as the soul of the son the soul who sins will die but they're mine because God God is owner of all he's vast he's limitless this is why idolatry and false worship is so offensive to God when we understand when we know his greatness his bigness no little block of wood or a piece of metal or or something else maybe even a person that we idolize should come before Him. Isaiah 44, if you read that and you study that chapter, I know it's one of Calvin's favorite chapters of the Scripture, God is calling out the sheer stupidity of idol worship. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but in it, He says a person cooks their food and and they make their food over a fire and then they'll make their idol over the same fire. They'll they'll cut down a tree to, to warm their home and then they'll make a statue out of the same tree and they'll say to the tree, now you deliver me. What sense does that make? You've shown total domination over this block of wood, and now you're submitting yourself to it. That's not, that's, that, like I said, that's, that's ignorance, that's stupidity. It's ridiculous. And yet, people will often take the God they made in exchange for the God that made them. As modern Christians, we, we do the same thing, do we not? It may not be a block of cedar may not be a gold trinket, but we worship images all the time. When we worship, our mind should not be on some image of God, some picture of Jesus, or some fa- something we've concocted to represent the Holy Spirit. Not at all. This actually violates the second commandment. God says, you shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You see, when you make an image, even in your mind, you're taking an earthly thing and something you've made in your own mind, and you're worshiping that. You're praying to that. I had someone recently, and I it was hard not, I'm, I'm going to be honest. You can ask Georgette. Sometimes, I don't know if this is a nervous tick of mine that's developing or what. But sometimes when people say stuff, it's hard for me not to laugh. And I'm not being a jerk. It's just, wow, really? You know, is it, what I want to say. So I laugh sometimes. But I had somebody say to me recently, I can't pray unless I have the image of Jonathan Rumi in my head as Jesus. He does such a good job, Pastor Jeff of looking like Jesus and acting like Jesus. To me, that man is Jesus. You are an idolater, if that's you. That is grade A prime idolatry. You've taken a man, and you've said, I can't even worship the real Jesus. I want to have that in my head. Now, I'm sure Jonathan Rumi is a nice man. I've never met him, okay? I've not watched every episode of The Chosen, I'm sure he's kind. I'm sure he's loving. But he did not die for your sin. He did not perform any miracles, at least off screen. Okay? The same thing goes for Jim Cavaziel. Remember when the Passion came out? People were saying the same thing. Oh, he just looks like Jesus. Really? Were you there when Jesus was walking the earth? Did you take some Polaroids? Any actor, any image of Jesus that we have becomes idolatry. Someone else told me, I had a dream. Jesus came to me in a dream. And I can't wait to get to heaven because he's such a good looking guy. (sighs) That is an image in your own mind. And it is idolatry. It is not true worship. Jesus does not come to earth any longer. I hate to be the one to break this to you. Because the next time he comes to earth, now someone may have a vision of Jesus. We hear of Muslims who supposedly have visions of Jesus, and it drives them to the missionary who speaks of Jesus to them and reveals who they're talking about. And yeah, that may happen, but Jesus does not come to earth and walk around in your bedroom while you're sleeping at night. Okay? He does not do that. The next time he comes to earth, he is coming as a conquering king not coming to your bedroom so you can have a a fine, nice dream and wake up in the morning feeling good about yourself. In fact, I would say every single person who claims to have met Jesus on planet Earth in the last 200 years has either started a cult or wrote a bad translation of the Bible or went nuts into heresy or apostasy and not a single one of them ever affirmed the true Jesus of Scripture. Not one. Because it's not him it's something they're making up and they're not heralding the truth of christ it's their own if we're honest it's their own holiness they they claim they have so they can manipulate people we often see this in the modern day apostles and prophets they they claim these titles for themselves so they can commit spiritual abuse to the people under them in fact another one just made the news this past week but david goes on verse two For He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is not just God's vast power. This is not just the the scope of God, God's being that David is speaking to of us, but His sovereignty, His order, His structure, His perfect, flawless design. And it's an obvious reference to creation. Genesis 1, 9, and 10 when God splits the the land and the seas, when He divides up the earth and the, the waters. When David says God founded, it's the Hebrew word, yisaday, and the Hebrew means he has destined it, that he established it, he allocated it. And when he says established in the English, it's another word, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but it means he prepared it. He set it up. In fact, what he's saying is God intentionally put things where he wanted them for a purpose because God is sovereign. God is a God of order. He has a plan and he has a purpose for all that he does. Now imagine seeing all that, looking upon God's creation and saying, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. I don't think he knows what he's doing. Who would dare do that? Yet we do it many times. In fact, Scripture tells us of people who've done this. Maybe, maybe they're saying, well, I wouldn't have made the ocean that color. I wouldn't have put the land at that altitude. I would have done stuff different. Well, it's a good thing you're not God because you understand if you change the colors of the ocean, you kill everything inside it. The blue of the ocean is actually caused by sediments that bacteria feed upon and bigger bacteria feed on those, eventually fish feed on that bacteria all the way up to the bigger fish, the whales, the sharks, and things like that. You're, you're killing the food chain. If you change the color of the ocean, imagine that. It's why whenever Moses in Exodus turns the the Nile River to blood, all the fish die. He wasn't turning the water red. He's he's changing the very substance of the water. If he made the land just a little bit higher, certain plant life couldn't grow. Certain insects couldn't develop and things like that. That is all God's personal plan. And that's why scientists use the term intelligent designer. They, They won't say God, right? But they'll say, well, there is an intelligent designer. There has to be. In fact, atheism is dying for this purpose because we're seeing the fine-tuning of the universe and how a brilliant mind set it up. In fact, one book I I read argues that if certain planets, certain stars didn't exist and have the gravitational pull on the earth that they do, we wouldn't have roses, we wouldn't have daisies. That's how fine-tuned the creation of God is. That's how beautiful his work and creation is. God didn't just throw dirt on water and keep stacking it and say, well, I'll make that Europe. That's not how he operates. He has a purpose behind all that he does. In fact, God loves to remind us of this. I said there are some who, who will question God. Well, Job does this very thing. He says, when I get to God, I'm going to ask him why. And so God shows up. And if you read the text, God gets sarcastic. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you know understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the lines on it? Or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went, for, it went out from the womb? eventually job understands what we have to understand that god is in control god is supreme and he says behold i'm insignificant what can i respond to you i'll place my hand over my mouth in other words job's saying i'll shut up now i'll be quiet he goes on he says because i know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted how often do we herald god's purpose how often do we tell people when they're, when they're struggling, hey, you know what, I, I know it hurts, but you know, God is going to do something great through this. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love God according to his purpose. Job heralds God's greatness. But the story never says he understood it all. Never says he got every question answered. Doesn't say he was even happy that he suffered. But at the end, he heralds the truth of God. He worships. When we understand God, when we know him, when we have that right theology, we proclaim him, we share him. Our lives are a testimony of his work. Our lives are a testimony of what he's done. We cannot focus our worship on him if we know nothing about him or twist who he is. But we must not stop with simply knowing about him we must revere him as holy, as the holy being that he is. And that's the second thing we see in our text. Worship must hallow him. Hallow is a fun word. It's an old word. We don't use it that much in society anymore, about once a year. It means to make something holy. And we see it in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. We see it on our calendar. Halloween. which used to be All Saints Day or hallows Eve. Worship must hallow him. It must make him holy. David asks the question in verse 2, sorry, verse 3. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? So first what we see David doing is establishing the bigness, the purpose, the vastness, the sovereignty of God. And then he says, now who could possibly touch that? Who could possibly reach Him? Who may ascend? Who could possibly do that, I wonder? You know, in the ancient world, for for someone to enter into a holy place, there were qualifications they had to fulfill. Things they had to have done to be considered worthy. They had to prove their worth. And as high up as the God of Israel is, as elevated as He is, who could possibly climb that mountain, right? Right? By the way, the mountains or the high places, they were seen as places you could go up and get closer to your God. It's one reason over and over and over in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, we see this reminder that the kings did not remove the high places because these were temples of worship to other gods. And sometimes for the wrong reasons, they were even dedicated to the God of Israel. Hezekiah was one of the first kings, or if not one of the only kings, to take them down. He took away the high places. He shattered the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent and all, all these other things. He destroys all the unworthy worship. That's what we should do in our lives. That's what we should do in the church. Now sometimes, like I said, sometimes those places were even meant as a place for Israel to go and worship the God of Israel. But they were, they were only going They were unsanctioned. They were unholy places of worship. But they would go up to them because then they could consider themselves worthy when they weren't. These were unhallowed places. They were not holy. And God's holiness is something he is very concerned about, something he repeatedly reminds us of. We see it consistently in the Scriptures. When Isaiah goes up to Heaven, or he has his heavenly vision and he's in the throne room of the King of Kings, the the God of Israel. He sees the seraphim around the throne and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. We see John says a very similar thing in Revelation 4.8. Holiness is the cry of heaven. Hallowedness is the cry of heaven. They are not saying God is love, love, love. Or good, good, good. Or God is gentle, gentle, gentle. Or peace, peace, peace. No. He is holy, holier, holiest thing in all the universe. So if someone were to ascend to the top of that holy mount, if someone were to come into his presence, that holy place, it has to be someone special, someone worthy someone who is at home in holiness someone who is capable of being holy and church i hate to break it to you that eliminates us it eliminates everyone except one person the very next verses four and five they read he who has innocent hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Innocent hands, pure heart. Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? You think you know your heart. You think, hey, I've got it under control. I'm, I'm, I'm doing really good. God, I, I feel so close to you. I feel so good and at peace in my heart with the Holy Spirit. And then somebody with Minnesota plates gets in front of you on the highway. We laugh, but we all feel it, don't we? Or, oh man, God, I had such a good day. I feel so good. And you come home and you check the mail and there's that letter you weren't really wanting to get. It's a jury summons. Ah, oh, really? And you come in the house and the wife made your least favorite thing. Maybe I'm just speaking from my experience, but guys, you think your, your heart's good and then these little things, they add up. Or your husband comes home. Ladies, I'm not going to leave you out here. Your husband comes home. You've been in this mood. You've been, in, you've been at work all day and even in, through all the stress of work, you've kept it together. You've rejoiced. You've worshiped. Your husband comes home and he looks at what you cooked and he says, that again. And out comes the heart, Right? Out of the heart, the mouth, or out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And there we go. See, we all, we don't have a pure heart, do we? Clean hands. James tells the church, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Somebody who's done horrible things with their hands, or just sinful things with their hands. Maybe you took a sucker from the grocery store one day with your hands you're a thief we've all sinned the person who can climb that holy mountain cannot be us our hands need to be cleansed our heart needs to be washed purified it has to be a person who's never lifted up his soul to worthlessness in other words a person who's not put his trust in idols we've established we've all had idols in our lives We've all given ourselves over to things that are worthless. It has to be someone who has never sworn deceitfully. That's somebody who's never broken a promise, never tricked, defrauded, or lied. How many of you have never lied in your entire life? You just lied. All right? If you raise your hand, you just lied. I'm not calling anybody out, but I saw a hand go up. We all have. All of humanity since Adam has, except one single man, Jesus of Nazareth. Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? Who may rise to his holy place? Who has innocent hands, a pure heart, never lied, never followed an idol? Who could that possibly be? One who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin, writes Hebrews. It's Jesus, that spotless lamb who slaughtered on a cross for our sin and yet rose from the grave. Only Jesus is worthy because only Jesus is holy. Heaven declares this. Revelation 5-9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Praise God. The earth knows this. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen! We would agree with that because we understand Jesus. We get who He is. Psalm eight seven says even the dragons will praise Him or the sea monsters or the, the, the demonic entities will one day have to acknowledge the truth of Jesus Christ, that He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. Even looking at Job, the devil knows he has to go to God even to get permission from God before he can harm a human. And the devil gets so much credit for that entire book, he's only in the first two chapters. It's Job's friends who cause him the most problems. His friends show up and and they preach what's called a gospel of retribution. It's like an early form of the prosperity gospel. Eventually Job says, you guys are the worst friends anybody could ever ask for. You're horrible comforters. You're you're like the worst guys I could have asked for. You show up and want to talk to me about this stuff. Most of mankind does not recognize Jesus as worthy of worship because we believe the lie of the snake in the garden that somehow we are equal to him or worthy of what he has. That's one of the messages of Job's comforters. Well, you've messed up. You've done something unrighteous because otherwise God only punishes people who are wicked. If you were God, you'd be if you were good, you'd be like God, and he doesn't hurt people who are like him. The only man who ever existed worthy of worship was not lifted up onto a throne. He was lifted up onto a cross. And it's only through him we can have a pure heart. It's only through him we can be holy. It's only through him we can have clean hands. And one day he's going to reign as the proper ruler and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. It's here in this song, this at this point in the Psalm, it's here that after understanding this, after singing this with the king leading them, this is where the people would now respond. This was their response. Verse six, this is the generation of those who seek him who seek your face, pay heed, O Jacob. They seek Him because they're not worthy. They understand that now. The king's led them, but He's not worthy either. They need a Savior. In other words, what they're saying is, you know what, we're not going to be that person who can climb that mountain, who can be in the presence of God, but we will be the generation, we will be the people who seek after Him. We will be the people who pursue Him. We are the generation that wants to worship right. We want to be the people who glorify the king of kings. And they worship him by seeking. And church, please understand this. That word in Hebrew is dachresh. And it means to investigate him. To carefully study him. They're the generation who doesn't just want to take the pastor's notes and go home and say, well, that was a good service, set them aside, and six months later, throw them away. They're the generation who doesn't just take the guy on YouTube's word for it because he's got 10 million followers. They're the generation who will be a Berean. It blows my mind when there are churches that claim to have a move of the Holy Spirit but will not allow a person to be a Berean within their their services and study the Scriptures. I I hear this term thrown out, biblicist, that people worship the Bible. That just shows they don't care anything for it, or they would understand that's not what's happening at all. We are worshiping God by hearing His Word and trying to seek Him and understand His Word. Being a Berean in in many churches has become synonymous with becoming a, a Pharisee. Good example, when I was a youth pastor, there was some bad teaching going on in the church. And I went to the pastor, I gave him the position paper of the Assemblies of God. And church, I would recommend, please take time and read those position papers. You will learn more about the theology of the Assemblies of God, where we stand, what we believe. But took to him the position paper about something he had been preaching. And it had caused a lot of spiritual abuse in our church. And we were sitting there, and I'll never forget it. It was at On the Border, Lolly. We were at On the Border in Avon, Indiana. I say that because she's ate at On the Border. She knows what I'm talking about. Great food. But anyway, it's getting lunchtime, Pastor. Hurry it up. Uh, We're sitting there, and I hand him the position paper, and he looked at the title. He folded it in half, and he said, You are very close to touching the Lord's anointed. You're becoming a Pharisee. This is what the assemblies believes. It's not what I'm going to preach. But what you're preaching isn't biblical. I don't care about that. You're being a Pharisee. There are many churches who do the exact same thing. Stop being a Pharisee. No, it's called being a Berean. And we need to make it cool again. The Bereans, Luke tells us, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining there's that word again, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Who were they questioning? The apostles. Peter and James and those guys were not above being questioned. I can just hear someone saying, well, there's your proof, Pastor. See, the Bereans, we don't have a book in our Bible called the Bereans. We got one to the Thessalonians. They must have been pretty good. No, they needed correction. The reason we don't have a, a letter to the Bereans is because they studied. They never got off track like the church in Thessalonica. The, church, the Thessalonians, they received it. They never looked into it. But the Bereans studied. So there's no letter, dear church at Berea, my how you've fallen. You notice they're not even one of the seven churches of Revelation. Because they got it right. They stay grounded in the scriptures. We're becoming a generation who does not want to study, who does not want to seek him. Don't want to discover him. We don't want to search him out because we think we either already know all we need or worse, we think we know better than him. The Holy Spirit told me is never a substitute for scripture says. It does not supersede that. And if you say the Holy Spirit told me, the next words out of your mouth, if they don't align with the word of God, you should thank him that we don't live in the Old Testament and drag you to the edge of town and beat you with rocks. That's a fact. That's what they would do to false teachers, people who claim to speak on behalf of God and would get it wrong. If we want to be a generation that worships him, our worship must keep him holy, must make him holy above all things. Not what we want Him to be, but cherishing and enjoying and worshiping who He actually is. Worship is not about ourselves or about our wants. It's not even really about our needs. Worship isn't about us. It's about Him. Deuteronomy 10.21 says, He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and fearsome things for you which your eyes have seen. Psalm 75, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks For your name is near. Men recount your wondrous needs. Again, a Berean is not a Pharisee. The Pharisee is the person who does not search the Scriptures. In fact, a Pharisee is someone who would take the pastor's word for it, the guy on YouTube's word for it, and just run with it. Because the Pharisee only cares about what people think. The Pharisee only believes and practices the traditions. Jesus scolds them from the Scriptures, Using Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, the Lord said, because this people draw near with their lips and honor me with their mouth, sorry, I got those around draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but they remove their heart far from me and their fear of me is the command of men learned by rote. In other words, they don't really fear me. They don't really keep me holy. They don't really acknowledge who I am. They've only learned teachings of men and ran with those. Their hearts are far from Him. But they thought they'd be okay because, hey, so-and-so says this is what we're supposed to do. If we want our worship to be right, if we want to truly glorify God, it must hallow Him. We must sing of His holiness. And not only that, we must hail Him. The word hail means to cheer or salute or enthusiastically shout. In other words, we don't use that word hail very often. But we are proclaiming him. We are sharing him. We're shouting from the rooftops who our God is. Well, in fact, the only time we really use the word hail is when we look at the weather. It doesn't mean the same thing, obviously. But verse 7, it says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. He's saying, Rise up and welcome the king. The, the heads of the gate, that's the gatekeeper. Lift up your head and honor the coming king. This is, again, this is David singing to the gatekeeper. But he'd understand it's not David, the king, who's coming. It's the presence of the Almighty who we want to invite in. Open the doors, let the king in. Some believe the ancient doors refers to the gates of heaven which Jacob saw in Genesis 28. He was afraid and said, how fearsome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The city of Jerusalem, of course, David, in David's time, the, the doors to the city of Jerusalem were supposed to represent heaven's gates. And there's meant to be a connection to the throne of heaven in the temple, in the sanctuary. So as the people are coming in and they're, they're worshiping, the idea is, we're coming into his presence, but we want the king to be there. As we saw last week, the people, the city of God, who is that now? That's us. That's the church. And when the church, the people come together, the people of God worship him. We often talk about inviting God in, inviting the Holy Spirit. Well, we say that, we understand that to mean that He is present already. That's one of the attributes of God. He is omnipresent. He's already here. But we want to recognize His presence. We desire for Him to participate in the worship with us and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we say we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit, we know He's already here, but we want Him moving through us as we worship, as He draws us into the will of God. Paul spells that out for us in Philippians 3.3. 3. He says, we're the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we want to be Spirit-led. Amen? You guys are still awake. All right, we're good. We're almost done. I'm not making any promises. Je- Jesus Himself, He tells the woman at the well in John 4, there's coming a day where the people will worship in Spirit and in truth. We want this in our worship. We want to be in the Spirit, but we also need to be in the truth. We want, to, we want to proclaim His majesty, His goodness, His divinity. And the Holy Spirit not only enables and empowers us in worship, but He includes us in the worship as we operate in the gifts that He gives us. 1 Corinthians 12.11, one in the same Spirit, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit, works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. See, the problem with the Corinthians was they wanted specific gifts. They wanted to choose the gifts they got. We don't do that. The Holy Spirit does. And we understand that in verse 7, and verse 9 is exactly like it, this is an exhortation to be open to him, to rejoice and shout and cheer the God we worship. That to come together and worship, we're not just inviting Him in, we are expecting Him to be a part of it. The gates, the doors of the church are always open to Him to move. May the King of kings come into this place and, and have His way among His people. It's an exhortation, it's a command to be excited in our worship. You see some people come to church, okay, I'm here. Praise God. from You know, where's the excitement? If that's the God you worship, if that's how passionate you are, maybe you need a heart check because something's off. So David gives us exhortation, but then he gives us this explanation. He asks this question. It's rhetorical, and he, he answers it. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. If there is any doubt as to whom they're worshiping, It's the God of Israel. By the way, Jesus is also Yahweh. He's God. He's the second person of the Trinity. Deuteronomy makes this clear. Yahweh our God is one. Jesus said that's the most important command in all of Scripture. And if we love Him, we cheer Him. We hail Him. We welcome Him. As He's holy, He's hallowed, we herald Him. He's the king of glory. He's the divine presence. He is the most important thing, the most important person in all of the cosmos. And like I said last week, he is no slouch. He's a warrior. He's strong. He's mighty in battle. That word mighty is the word "gebar," and it means he is a champion known for his fighting ability. Our God is a warrior. Moses sang that. Our God's a warrior, and he's with his people as we worship him. Well, what war is he fighting? He's fighting first against our flesh as he sanctifies us, justifies us, as we're keeping him holy. He fights for his people against the powers of darkness as as we herald him. He's mighty in battle. Battle, by the way, just means hand-to-hand combat or even war. Last week I pointed this out. He is a God who fights for us. He is that mighty fortress that Martin Luther sings of. He's not just a place of refuge and a place of healing. He's a battlement that we fight from as he also fights for us. Psalm 46.11 says, Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. That word stronghold, if you remember, he is our high point, our high ground, the place we rally to as we fight our battles. And whatever your battle, whatever your struggle, whatever your troubles, he's not done worship him he's fighting the battle but are we heralding him are we keeping him hallowed are we hailing him as the battle rages on abraham lincoln once said my concern is not whether god is on our side my greatest concern is to be on god's side for god is always right he's our fortress he's our true fortress and if we've opened the gates and we've welcomed Him into our lives, if we've called Christ Jesus our Lord and we've meant it and we've repented, we've turned from our wickedness and we've followed Him, if His Holy Spirit is changing us and growing us and His fruit is evident in our lives, then we have to worship, That we have no other option but to worship Him. As He draws us more and more to His side, to His will, to conform us to the image of His Son. It's not to say we're not going to have times we struggle or times we fall, times we fail. But even then, we sing a song of praise. We sing a song of worship. And from there, He lifts up our heads and He leads us back to the battlefield for a victory. Psalm 27, verse 6 says, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in His tent sacrifices with loud shouts of joy. He's hailing Him. I will sing, and I will sing praises to Yahweh. That's what it looks like to proclaim Him in worship. Now you'll notice verses 9 and 10 are exactly the same as 7 and 8. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up yourselves, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, the King of glory? Yahweh of hosts, He is the King of glory. Selah. The word selah, of course, means we're to reflect on it. We're to meditate on it. To pause. To be at peace. You might say this is the chorus of the song. But it emphasizes to the reader The one who sings the psalm must understand what it means. The king of glory is coming. Receive him. Who is he? He's the God of armies. He's the king of all that is good and all that is holy. And we're going to close in just a second. But we call him Christ Jesus. So we herald him, we hallow him, and we hail him. Jesus Christ, the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and I want to This is a quote from another pastor. He said, if worship does not change us, it has not been worship. It's not about us, but it does change us. It has to. As we draw near to him, how can you come into the presence of a holy God and walk away the same? It's not possible. As we give him all the glory and all the praise and all the honor and all the worship, we're going to do that today as we close. If you will stand with us. If worship is just a song, if you're just going through the motions, if you're just coming to church and you leave the same way, then you didn't come here to worship. At least you're not worshiping the same God David sings of in Psalm 24. Because we love the cross and we love the shepherd, but we worship the King. When we leave here today, may we herald Him. Wherever we go, whatever we do, may he be hallowed in our lives, both publicly, privately. And today as we close, let's hail him and be excited to worship him once more.